0: Good evening. I'm Carla Hayden with the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and welcome to the Central Library, soon to be renovated. It will start this coming December, so we are very excited. Now, we also appreciate you being here tonight for another edition of our Writers Live sp- series, sponsored by PNC Bank. And this is definitely a special night for all the Baltimore foodies here who are eager to greet our special guest. I also want to fully confess that I am one, I may not be a foodie, but I am a Ruth Reichel groupie. And so we are delighted to have the former New York Times food critic, gourmet editor-in-chief, and author here with us tonight. You may clap right now. This this is a perfect time for Ruth to be in Baltimore, especially with our city chefs receiving national and international acclaim, like Spike, uh, who recently won a James Beard Award. And we're all excited to hear her discuss her book, Delicious, and what she has to say about food trends and any restaurant experiences she may have had already in Baltimore. But before uh, we hear from our special guests, I just want to say again to uh, a thank you to PNC Bank for their support in so many ways. Many of you probably saw the news um, uh, a day or so ago when the bank don- donated, donated a wonderful sum to the library branch on Pennsylvania North Avenues. And it was not only heartening to be there but also to know what that gift will be. And so we just want to thank Laura Gamble, who's here, for that. Their grant of $25,000 to just that branch, which was in the epicenter of the recent unrest, will be used to fund additional programs for children and teens and upgrades to the library. So thank you. Now, for a complete schedule of upcoming authors to the library and the Writer's Live series, please grab a copy of our newsletter, Compass, on your way out, or you can visit, and you know we're very modern, our website, PrattLibrary.org. You can also tweet us and Twitter us. (laughs) Roswell Encina, who's our communications director, is dying right now. And also, though, a special thank you to the folks from the Ivy Bookstore. Please know that your support of independent bookstores is needed more than ever in this time of the publishing uh, turmoil. So we thank them for being here. Now, back to this evening. To introduce our special guest tonight is a person who I think has one of the best jobs in Baltimore. She has the opportunity to meet Baltimore foodies, visit amazing restaurants, and literally taste the city's finest. She's the food and travel editor. Oh, I forgot all the trips she gets to take, too. For Baltimore Magazine, please welcome Miss Jane Marion.
1: I do indeed have the best job in Baltimore. For more than 40 years, Ruth Reichel has kept us nourished on a steady diet of food writing. She is an icon of culinary criticism and has long been considered the best food writer in the country. As a young child presiding over her parents' dinner parties, where she protected guests from eating her mother's rancid food, to her boarding school days where she indulged in foie gras, to reporting from the front lines of America's food revolution, Ruth was a foodie long before we had a word for it. Born and raised in New York City, Ruth graduated from the University of Michigan with a master's degree in art history. Since then, she has elevated food writing to its own form of art. In 1972, Ruth wrote her first cookbook at age 21. For the ensuing decades, she worked as a food writer and editor of New West Magazine, a restaurant critic and food editor for the Los Angeles Times, the food editor for the New York Times, and editor-in-chief of Gourmet Magazine until it folded in 2009. Her best-selling memoirs include Tender at the Bone, Comfort Me with Apples, Garlic and Sapphires, The Secret Life of a Critic in Disguise and For You, Mom, Finally, which has been translated into 18 languages. Along the way, she has appeared as a judge on Top Chef and been honored with six James Beard Awards. Ruth recently fulfilled her lifelong dream of writing a novel with the release of Delicious. Inspired by her years at Gourmet, the novel is set inside a venerable food magazine where editorial assistant Billy Breslin stumbles on letters Written during World War II by a 12-year-old girl to the legendary James Beard. With its nod to New York as a foodie haven, a down the rabbit hole backstory about Beard, and a gingerbread recipe at the back of the book, delicious more than lives up to its title. So when I was asked to introduce Ruth Reichel for this evening's event, I couldn't have been more pleased. After nearly three decades in journalism, I became the food editor at Baltimore Magazine just last year. I've always been a fan of Miss Reichel's work, but it wasn't until I stepped into her playground that I realized how hard it is to write about food. When Ruth and I spoke by phone last week, I asked her, so what is the secret ingredient to good food writing? People think it's important that you have a great palate, she told me, but it's not. What you need is the ability to describe flavor in a way that transcends taste. In Ruth Reichel's world, a ragu of blue crab does a pirouette in the mouth, while a dish of linguine is fragile ribbons as delicate as butterfly wings, and foie gras at one spot is a lobe of cholesterol. (laughs) You have this built-in bonus that people are interested in food, she said. You can't waste it by writing bad copy. If you're going to bore people, then give it up. One critic commented that reading Ruth Reichel on food is almost as good as eating it. For Ruth, dining out is about much more than the execution of a particular dish or quelling one's physical hunger. Always the food matters. But Ruth recognizes our innate need to be nourished, not only figuratively, but literally as well. Now, it is my absolute honor to introduce Ruth Reichel.
2: That may be the best introduction anyone has ever given me, and I've had a lot, let me tell you. Um, I, I thought that I would begin by telling you A little bit how this novel Delicious came to be and it starts with me on book tour for the second gourmet cookbook. I don't know if any of you have seen the gourmet cookbooks but there are two of them. One is yellow and one is green and they are enormous. They both have more than 1200 recipes in them. So the the first cookbook was a huge bestseller and we made a fortune on it. And my boss, Cy Newhouse, said, you should sell a second one. And he said, you know, you got a million dollar advance for the first one. Um, Go out and do better. Um, So when I got a million dollar advance for the second one, he said, I told you to do better. He said, a million dollars in 2009 isn't the same as a million dollars in 2004. Get more. So I got a million and a quarter as an advance, and attached to that was the promise to the publisher that I would go out and sell it until it became a bestseller. So book tours are very odd Creatures. You essentially go to a different town every day, and you have to get up very early in the morning because you're usually going to do morning television in the next town. So, you know, you, the, the hotel operator wakes you at four in the morning and you go, Where am I? What city is this? And then you go to the next town and you do morning TV, and then you might not have another event for. Four hours, and you're in some town where you know no one. And so you quickly learn that you better figure out how to fill your time. And what I started doing was going to used bookstores and looking for odd things. You don't want to collect cookbooks because they're heavy and you don't want anything heavy in your suitcase. But I started looking for the ephemera that you often find on the very bottom shelf of used bookstores, the little pamphlets that used to come in flower bags, and um, uh, recipes from the Department of Agriculture. And one day, ferreting around, I found a huge cache of ephemera from World War II. And it was fascinating, because I really didn't know much about that time, and Um, There were ads for the Women's Land Army, which I'd never heard of, and the Crops Conservation Corps. And there were um, things from the Department of Agriculture on how to plant a victory garden. And there were also recipes. And I started looking at these recipes, and I was stunned by how awful they were. Um, Here's one. This is something called a salmi of liver. And this, this is a, an actual recipe. You begin with a piece of liver, which you cut into small pieces. You boil those pieces for 20 minutes. You then take them out, drain them, roll them in flour, fry them in lard, cover them with cream, and dice up pimento-stuffed olives and toss that in. And I looked at this recipe and thought... I I can't remember seeing a recipe as awful as this ever. (laughs) And I started going through and I I started looking for rationing cookbooks and the recipes are really terrible. I mean, there was one recipe for mayonnaise which suggested that you take mashed potatoes, mix in a little bit of mustard and that would be a perfect substitute for mayonnaise. Um, So I started studying World War II um, just as a way of passing time on book tour. And and as I did it, I, I became more and more fascinated with the time because really it was the only time in America. And, you know, right now we're in a time in America where depending what your economic status is, we sit down at very different tables. If you're a rich person, you can have food that has never been touched by pesticides, that has been picked by angels, animals who have had nothing but happy lives. And if you're a poor person in America, you are often relegated to stuff that's cheaper than food. Well, World War II was very different. Everybody sat down to the same table. It was, Roosevelt considered food to be one of the fronts of the war. Um, Everybody felt that they had to save food so there was enough to feed the soldiers and they saved their fat to make munitions with. And for that one period, everybody ate the same thing. And I I got very interested in it and started looking for um, good recipes for rationing. Okay, so I'm doing this to entertain myself and meanwhile I'm going from one city to the next. And I am in Seattle and I'm being interviewed by a reporter from the local paper at a very nice restaurant, and I very politely turn off my cell phone so I won't be interrupted, and suddenly I see the manager of the restaurant coming towards me with a very worried look on his face, and he says, there's an emergency phone call for you. I, of course, immediately think something horrible has happened to somebody in my family, And when I go to the phone and hear my boss's voice, my first feeling is just relief. Uh, My husband hasn't had a heart attack. My son hasn't broken his leg. Um, And then it's like, why is he calling me in Seattle in the middle of a book tour? Middle of a book tour, and he says, "You have to come home." And I, of course, immediately think I'm about to be fired and say, "Can you give me a hint?" And he says, No, just get on the next plane and come home. And I said, Well, I'm really supposed to be in Portland tomorrow. And he says, You have to be here tomorrow. So I get on a plane and I go home, and I am standing in the office at Gourmet with my entire staff. And Cy Newhouse, the owner, comes down and says, We're closing the magazine effective immediately. And we were all stunned. Uh, Gourmet was a 69-year-old magazine. And yeah, we were in a recession and magazines were doing badly, but our circulation was at an all-time high. Our renewals were splendid. Um, And it had never... I I, I thought they might fire all of us, but it never crossed my mind that they would close the magazine. And so after he left... um, We all sort of looked at each other and then did what any sensible people would do in that situation was make a beeline for the drinks editor's office where he had hundreds and hundreds of bottles of wine and we just drank all day. And when it was 5 o'clock, none of us was ready to give up being with each other. So I said, you know, everybody come back to my house and we carried the wine and... We gathered food as we went, and we all went back to my house and had a wake that lasted all night. The next morning, everybody else went back to the office to pack up their belongings and start looking for new jobs. And I went back on book tour for a book that was not mine, I did not make a penny from, and had... But I, was contract- I had promised that I would make this book a bestseller for Psy. So um, it was one of the strangest times of my life because um, it was like a revival meeting everywhere I went. Everybody wanted to stand up and testify to what the magazine had meant to them. And it was a very, it was a wrenching emotional experience and five weeks later, the book hit the bestseller list, and I could go home. And I went home, and there was a note from Sy's secretary saying, We really need you to clean out your office. <laughs> um, everybody else, I mean, the, everybody else has got long gone, and we need your office. So I went to four times square and I got at it on the fourth floor and we had had this big purple wall right by the elevator with huge silver letters with the letters for gourmet spelled out on it and someone had wrenched them all out of the wall so there were just holes where that had been and I went into the offices and it was the most depressing sight I've ever seen um, they were, it had been trashed by people from other magazines had come down and taken what they wanted people had left dying plants and broken chairs and there were big dumpsters kind of floating through the halls with um, every photograph Gourmet had ever taken sort of crumpled up and thrown in there along with broken staplers and um, it was really depressing and so I went into the kitchen thinking, well, the kitchens, or we had eight test kitchens. I thought, well, they'll, they'll be unchanged. Well, they were unchanged. They had locked the doors, not taken anything out. And five weeks later, it was filled with rotting food. It was really disgusting. And as I was leaving the kitchen, there was one orange that was sitting on a counter I picked up the orange, and it just disintegrated in my hands. So now I'm really depressed. And I go into the... I'm making my way down the hall to my office, and I pass the library door. And I think I had locked the library before I left because the Gourmet Library was a remarkable... For 69 years, every cookbook that was published in America went through that library, and it had been culled by, you know, the the test cooks needed those recipes, and it had been culled because we only had room for about 5,000 books, but it had been culled down to the very best of the books that had been published, so it was a remarkable uh, collection of books, and I thought they should remain intact, so I'd locked the door. And I thought, well, I'll just go in there and I'll sit among the books and it'll be friendly. And, you know, the library, in in Delicious, I have made it into a beautiful Victorian room with golden light and stained wind. I mean, it's a fantasy. It was kind of like this. But the library at Gourmet was a, uh, a windowless storage room in a soulless modern building. It was not like that. But I did notice as I was sitting there gathering my thoughts that there was a filing cabinet I had never noticed in the back of the room. And I went back and opened it up, and every letter Gourmet had ever gotten was in there. And I thought, this has got to be a remarkable history of American food in here. And it's really a shame because if they're throwing out the photographs, they're surely not gonna hang on to old letters. And I thought, well, I'll just start looking at them. Well, to my deep disappointment, they were not interesting. They were complaints, they were requests for recipes. Uh, There really wasn't, I'm sure if I'd had time to go through it all, there would have been some wonderful things in there, but what I found, in going through them for about 20 minutes was pretty dreary. And I finally thought, okay, I better go pack up my office. So I went into my office, and I will never know why I did this. You know, I mean, sometimes when you're a writer, these notions come to you. And probably it was just the other thing that writers do, um, which is procrastinate. I really didn't want to start packing. So I sat down at my computer, and I wrote the letters that I wished I had found. And I spent all day writing. This little girl named Lulu Swan just came to me, fully formed. And Lulu lives in Akron, Ohio, and her father is in the war. I have World War II in my head. And her father is in the war. And her mother is working in an airplane factory, and she has to cook for the first time in her life. And of course, the first recipe that she tries is this liver salmi that she has found. And it is gross. It is just disgusting. And so she does the only thing she can think of to do, which is write to the only chef she's ever heard of, James Beard, who in fact did work at Gourmet. And so Lulu writes, Dear James Beard, don't you think it's your patriotic duty to try and write some decent recipes for people like me who are trying to do the right thing and cook good food? And all day I just sat there with this conversation that Lulu has with James. Now, I knew James, not well, but I knew him. And if any. Buddy would have written back to Lulu, it would have been James Beard, who loved his audience, was very generous with them. So I, I wrote four years worth of letters. I mean, Lulu writes to him all through the war. And then I finally thought, okay, I better pack up my office. So I, I hit send, sent the letters off to myself, no idea what I was going to do with them, but it had been a very satisfying exercise. And I packed up my office and went home. And a year later, when I went to write a novel, and it finally occurred to me that I was, I had a, I'd had a year of sort of healing myself, and I, I was ready to try writing a novel, Lulu came back to me and said, you know, I'm here, I'm waiting. And I knew that I did not want to write a, a period piece so i didn 't want Lulu to be the heroine of the book. I wanted to write a contemporary book, and um, I really wanted um, I wanted to have the fun of writing a young person of like becoming you know young again and um, trying to write someone who was very, very different than me. And, but I loved the notion that help would come my, my troubled Heroin Billy, um, finds great help from someone who lived 70 years before. And the notion that help can come across time and space was, uh, it meant a lot to me. And so that—that that is really the genesis of uh, Lulu was a gift. Um, I thought that the other thing that I would tell you is, One of the questions I am always asked when we open it up to questions is how did you become a restaurant critic? Because everybody wants to be a restaurant critic and it is the best job in the entire world. Um, And I have written in Tender at the Bone about um, writing my first restaurant review and how I felt as if I had spent my whole life preparing to do that, and that every restaurant I had ever worked in, every chef I'd ever worked for, every every waitress I'd ever worked with was lining up behind me, helping me write that review. But I've never written about the second review because the truth is that after I wrote the first review. They said to me, well, this is very nice, but, we, but you better write another one before we fire our restaurant critic and give you the job. We, be, we need to make sure you're really the right person. So um, I have to admit that at that point in my life, I was not thinking I'm going to have a new career. Oh, I can be a restaurant critic. What I was really thinking was free meals. They're going to pay for me to go out and eat free meals. What a great thing. And we were very poor. My husband and I were living in a commune, and the idea that I was going to get to go to fancy restaurants was really swell. And I went home and said to all the people in my commune, they have told me that we have to go to the fanciest French restaurant in San Francisco. It was a restaurant called Robert. They want to make sure that I can review fancy French restaurants. Um, So we all have to go and get clothes that are appropriate for this. So we all go to our local thrift store, Value Village, and we get appropriate clothes, and we gather in the hallway of our commune, and we look each other over, and we really think we look kind of swell. And we get into my husband's van to make the drive from Berkeley to San Francisco. Doug is an artist, and he had a panel van with no windows. But he had come up with a brilliant solution for figuring out how to get around the fact that there were no windows. He had turned the van into a a moving camera obscura. So he'd put mattresses on the floor, painted the walls white, and put a board behind the two front seats with a pinhole in it. So when you got into the van and lay down, the landscape, the passing landscape, was projected upside down on the walls of the van. So we drive to San Francisco, across the Bay Bridge, with the bridge projected upside down, um, and... We get over to the Marina District of San Francisco, and, of course, we cannot give this fabulous... This is a, a work of art. It's not a vehicle, so we can't give it to a valet. We have spent a long time looking for a place to park. We finally get out, and we're kind of get out like a bunch of clowns getting out of a circus vehicle and go into the restaurant. In my many years as a restaurant critic, I have learned that the worst thing you can have happen is for your guests to start giving you their opinion. And so I, you know, now when I, if I, my many years as a critic, I, the first thing I would say to my guests is, um, you can eat anything you want, you can't order anything that anybody else has ordered. Um, and if you see something you want, you better claim it first, because I'm not mediating food fights But after that, don't talk about the food. This is my job, not your job. Just enjoy yourself. But I didn't know that. So all my roommates, of course, desperately want me to have this job because they are seeing endless free meals. And they are throwing information at me. I mean, all through the meal. um, One of my roommates, who is actually now the restaurant critic of the LA Times, was sitting there going... Yes, there's parsley in here and some cilantro. My artist husband is paying attention to the colors, the, the typography on the menu. One of our roommates who had been a bartender is watching every move the mart- bartender makes with eagle eyes, and they're all just saying, did you see that, did you see that? And I have this epiphany where I see us as a gang that has been sent by a rival restaurateur to find fault with this restaurant. And I go home and in a blaze of inspiration I write a little it's like a film script a film noir script uh, which I call Cops and Robert. And it begins the names have all been changed to protect the innocent and I give all of my roommates' name, fingers, the mouth. And the whole thing is a kind of dialogue of this gang about the restaurant. And, and it's, the information is woven through, but it's not like any restaurant review that has ever been seen before or since. Um, and... I go to bed, and I think I better, I better read this in the morning and see if it's really any good. But I get up the next morning, and I look at it, and I, I think it's pretty good. And I drive back to San Francisco and throw it on my... I can't find a place to park, so I just run into the magazine, throw it on my editor's desk, and leave. And halfway back across the Bay Bridge, I suddenly realize... What a fool I have been. This is not a restaurant review. It's kind of a dopey short story. Um, I go into a complete panic. None of my friends are ever gonna talk to me again. I've blown the world's greatest job. Um, what, What a fool, and of course, if I had had a cell phone, I would have immediately called my editor, but I didn't, and I'm in the middle of the Bay Bridge, but I get across the bridge. I get off at the first exit, I throw every penny I have into a uh, payphone and I call my editor and say, John, don't read that. I gave you the wrong piece. That's not the piece that I meant to give you. I have another piece that I wrote and I'll be back in an hour with the real piece. How I thought I was going to write another piece and be back in an hour, I don't know. But anything desperate to get him to not look at this and throw it in the garbage. And there's a long silence. And I'm so busy beating myself up that I barely hear him say, this is fantastic. And you have to remember, this is like the mid-'70s. This is new journalism. And John says to me, uh, American restaurants are growing and changing, and the writing about them should change too. Uh, Just stretch the form. And for the next six years in San Francisco, I wrote what are, without any doubt, the weirdest restaurant reviews ever written. Um, I wrote things that were set on Mars. I wrote things from the 17th century. I wrote Westerns and love stories. Um, and I, I did stretch the form as far as I possibly could. But... The lesson for me, and it has been a really serious life lesson, and one I have tried to follow, is I took a real chance, but it paid off. And for me, you know, one of the secrets of of life is take a chance. Um, if if it scares you, do it. And I went from that job to the Los Angeles Times. And, you know, I have no journalism background and no even literature background. I mean, my background is history of art. Um, And I did not know when I went to the LA Times that there was a difference between writing for magazines and writing for newspapers. And the first review I wrote was a review of a new restaurant. It was it was somebody had bought one of the most venerable restaurants in Hollywood, a restaurant that all the stars had gone to in the thirties and had refurbished it. And I wrote this piece about going there with Gloria Swanson. And I handed it in and the editor called me in and he said, Ruth? this is a newspaper. And I said, well, yeah, I know that. And he said, you can't make things up. You didn't go there with Gloria Swanson. She's dead. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, I now have to figure out how to write a different kind of review. Um, how am I going to do this if I can't tell stories. If I I can't write short stories anymore. I have to really think about how to write a restaurant review. And I thought, I can't write the kind of restaurant reviews that I'm reading everywhere else because they bore me. They're just, go here, eat this. It's a little too salty. It should have been this way. Um, It's boring. And so what am I I going to do to make this different? And then I really thought about, you know, how many people actually go to the restaurants? And this is especially, you know, I mean, this is early 80s when I'm reviewing mostly very high-end restaurants. And at that point, the LA Times had a circulation of a million and a half. Uh, You know, a million and a half people are not going to eat in Spago. They're they're not going to these fancy restaurants. So the one thing I can do is write not for the people who want to know how to spend their money, but for the people who would really like to go to these restaurants. The thing that I can do that can be the biggest service to my readers is put them in the seat. Make them try and taste the food. And I think the biggest compliment I ever got was when I was at the New York Times... I got a uh, a call from a man who said, "I wish you would review more steak restaurants." And I said, "Why?" And he said, "Because I had open heart surgery eleven years ago, and the only time I ever get to eat meat is when you write about steak, and I feel like I can taste it. So, could you please put a little more meat in your writing?" <laughs> Um, I want to leave time for Q and A's, so I I could go on telling you stories all evening. Um, but um, let me open this up to questions. I will I will answer anything anyone anybody would like to ask me. Um. <laughs> yes.
0: I don't think it's on. Yeah, no. The one thing that comes up in my mind is uh, my favorite line from Babette's Feast, which I'm sure uh, that you have seen, if not, you should, uh, is when the meal is finally happening and all of the patricians are sitting around and one whispers to the other, say nothing about the food, um, which I always found very uh, funny. But my question for you is... Uh, Obviously, on any day, you may have a different answer than you would today. But what has been your most memorable meal? Where was it and why?
2: Uh, You're right. I could answer this um, 4,000 different ways. Um, The most memorable, uh, the most life-changing meal I think I ever had was when I was on my honeymoon in Crete, 1970, Um, We walked up a mountain and uh, with a friend who lived there and we came to this little hut, it was a little stone hut and there was a huge heap of onions. I mean, I remember that the heap of onions was almost as big as the hut. And we went in and there was this old woman and she sat us down on the porch And she poured out olive oil that came from her own olive trees. And she went out into the fields and she picked wild oregano and thyme and sprinkled it into the olive oil. And she sliced onions and went and picked some tomatoes and put a plate of them out. And she came out with this huge loaf of bread and she just sliced pieces off of it and she just baked this bread. And she gave us wine from her neighbor, this really deep red wine. And then she said, I'll be back. And she went down the hill and went fishing. And she came back and she grilled this fish over wood that she'd collected on her way up. And it was a very simple meal, but... If you remember what people were eating in 1970 in America, we didn't have good olive oil, we didn't have good fresh fish. You, d- you did not get good tomatoes unless you grew it yourself. And it was everything had come from right there. And I thought, this meal is, it's of this place. It's of this moment. And I couldn't replicate this, no matter how hard I tried. I could not go back to New York and make this meal, and it was the first time I think I ever really understood the notion of terroir and food, and that and understood that it was about the ingredients, and that there was something really wrong with the way we were eating in this country. Um, you know, I could also give you. You know, I went to like the penultimate dinner at El Bulli and at the Ferran Adria. Um, I had a Absolutely fantastic meal um, last summer at uh, Stone Barns, Blue Hill at Stone Barnes, where, again, they're raising almost everything that they make themselves. Um, I mean, I could give you a 1,000 great meals. I mean, one of the more interesting meals. Um, Dan Barber, who is the chef at um, Stone Barnes, Blue Hill, and who actually, if you get Netflix, there's a really interesting series now called The Life of a Chef, that where they, they chronicle six chefs. And I'm kind of the voice for Dan in that. But um, there's one on Dan that's fascinating. And he did, uh, about six weeks ago, or two months ago, he closed his restaurant, Blue Hill, for... A month and turned it into something called Waste Ed. And they only, for a month, they only served food that would otherwise have been thrown away. And it was all, he was, it was a thing about waste. But it was fascinating because the food, I mean, he did things like he went to one of those juice bars and took the pulp that they throw out and he went to the factory that does smoked salmon for every place in new york and he took their sable bones because when they fillet it and he just served you the bones and there was so much meat on it it was you know all stuff that gets thrown away and the the candles on the table were beef tallow and at a certain point they just came and poured out the tallow onto your plate and gave you bread to eat and the food was fantastic and he had a whole series of a different celebrity chef from a different part of the country every night came in and did a different meal and the food was fascinating because as you all know food waste is one of the real issues facing us in America I mean at least 40 percent of the food that we raise gets thrown out Um, so that, that was another, I and mean, it was like inspirational. Nobody else? Yes.
0: I'm curious as to where you think food writing is going today. I love your Twitter account, by the way. It's probably the most beautiful... Example
2: of how good Twitter can be. Well, thank you. Um, I, I do found, feel like I found a voice in Twitter that I didn't know I had. Um, but um, you, food writing has changed so much in the course of my career. Um, you know, when I started, you didn't need to know very much because you were writing for a public that didn't know very much. So, you know, I mean... I, You could know a little bit about French food, maybe Italian food and continental food, and get away with being a restaurant critic. Um, Today, we have... the Kids today are the most knowledgeable generation of food people that this country has ever known. Um, And they give me so much hope because um, not only are they passionate about food, but they also understand that eating is an ethical act and they eat um, more consciously than, um, certainly than my generation did. Um, and because food writers today are writing to such a knowledgeable population, they have to be better than any of us were. Um, and the other thing that's really changed it is, you know, when I started writing restaurant reviews, Restaurant critics were essentially consumer reporters. Um, they were—they told you, they told which people where to spend their money. Essentially, um, today social media does does that. They social media acts as the consumer reporters. I mean, if you want to know uh, about the kind of bare bones things about a restaurant, you know whether it's any good you can go to Yelp and you can kind of triang- triangulate between you know the many stupid people and then the the there are smart people on there too and you can find out so restaurant critics today have to do what I consider real criticism and what real criticism is is giving you as a consumer of criticism, better tools to evaluate the experience, to appreciate it. It doesn't matter whether, you know. if you go to the theater or a concert or uh, you're reading a book or a museum, you read criticism to enhance your knowledge and your experience. And food criticism today has come to that place, too, where um, the people who are being paid to be critics are actually giving you real criticism, and it's very, it's very heartening. On top of that, you know, when I took over at Gourmet and I said, we are going to write about um, serious talk, we're going to write about ethical issues, we're going to write about genetic modification and fish farming, and I'm going to get you know, writers like David Foster Wallace to come in and deal with bioethics and... Um, my publishers were horrified. You know, they said, you know, people don't come to Epicurean magazines for these topics. Well, nobody would say that today anymore. I I mean, that's how much things have changed since the year 2000, that today the public demands to know what is really going on with the food system. Um, And so you have, like, really good reporters who, I mean, sadly are not writing for Epicurean magazines, but are writing for other publications. And so, you know, if you don't know what is going on in, um, you know, if you don't know about consignment, confinement animal facilities and how horrible they are, it's only because you don't want to know. It's out there now. Yeah. Thanks. So... 10 years ago, I met you twice (laughs) um, in New York. You had two books that came out. You had garlic and sapphires and the gourmet cookbook that you talked about. And you came to my local Barnes & Noble Lincoln Center. And I asked you the same question that I'm going to ask you now. Oh, God, and I probably answered it completely differently. And I've thought about this, and I actually told Maria dinner tonight. that I asked her this question 10 years ago because you were out talking, you know, about restaurant reviews and the life of eating in restaurants, and then you were promoting a cookbook to stay at home and cook. And how do you balance eating out and fine dining versus the at-home cook for your family experience? Okay, well, I, I probably said this then, but it's true. One of the main reasons that I gave up being a restaurant critic and went to edit Gourmet was because my son was nine years old, and I thought, this is really wrong. He does not eat. We don't sit down to family meal, and I think family dinner is one of the most important things you can do for your children and i keep saying this and meanwhile i go out every night and i've got to stop doing it but the other th- the other reason is it upset me then and it upsets me now that we spend so much of our private time in public spaces i think that the act of entertaining at home is very different than meeting someone for for a meal in a restaurant. There's a kind of bravery and honesty in inviting people into your home. And it's not so much about the meal as it is about everything else. This is who I am. You know, I mean if you if somebody comes to your house, they can see if your cats jump on the counter, if you know if you're not a but I mean, it's like you're 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 being brave enough to take down a barrier. And I hate the notion that we do that less and less. And, um, you know, one of the things that I think is happening with the younger generation with restaurants is kids today spend so much time in a virtual world. I mean, they spend, you know, 18 hours a day on the computer. And one of the things that they really want is to have a real connection and... They do it in restaurants. They go out because you cannot eat virtual food, and they want to actually talk to people. And one of the things I really hope happens is that these kids will start cooking and inviting people to their own house and cooking together and eating together as opposed to just constantly going out to eat in restaurants. I mean, I really think that... um, There is no substitute for cooking at home.
1: Uh, Jumping back to the computer, I am one of those young people who love to go out to restaurants, but I do love to cook as well. I guess, who are some of the food writers you're excited by? And I probably consume a million blogs every day. I mean,
0: do you have any favorites? Okay,
2: The, the, the daunting thing about blogs, food blogs, is, you know, 10 years ago, if you asked me that, I would basically have said, oh they're not very good now they're so good there are so many i mean i could spend all day and i don't have all day to do it but um you know the blogs i do like i like david leibovitz a lot i like molly orangette i like the wednesday chef uh food 52 is kind of brilliant um uh i have forgotten the name of it, but there's a great one um who, there's somebody who cooks historical recipes, which is really interesting um, there' are, i mean I think every time I answer this I answer it slightly differently because I read so many of them and, and i am um, uh, there's a lot in serious eats I really like um i mean there's just there's a lot of great stuff out there it's smitten kitchen um, I, uh, there's a lot I mean, you could spend all day just, you know, reading food blogs instead of working. It's very tempting. (laughs) So, um, not to ask for any pontificating, but I do want your opinion, because I work for the food industry, and um, I'm a big fan of Dan Barber, so I'm really happy you mentioned him. What do you think the response to the food industry will be, or could be, when you think about things like wasted and, you know, cost is always a big thing for the food industry, accessibility for food, for people, how will the industry or how should the industry respond to feeding people in such a way that it's, um, it's appropriate for where we are today and for the environment? Uh, we well, are, yeah, there's so much that's interesting that's going on. Um, yeah, you know, the there's a the Chefs Collaborative, for instance, is having a phone call about the drought in California and what that means for chefs, which is, you know, underreported. Um, you know, I mean everybody on the I feel like everybody in America is kind of blind to the fact that there's a stark drought in the place that we get most of our produce from. And um I spend uh, January and February in L.A. and this year at the Hollywood Farmers Market, the man I buy my beautiful Oro Blanco grapefruits from said to me, "Memorize this flavor. There won't be any Oro Blancos next year. My trees are dying." He said, "They're 40-year-old trees. They're dying." So, so I mean, you do have you have um, things like the Chefs Collaborative. You have um, actually a lot of very interesting venture capitalists. Venture capital going into Um, food technology in a big way. Some of it is uh, kind of depressing, but um, a lot of it is is kind of interesting, you know, that people are putting their mind to, you know, science, how can we feed the world um, in uh, ways that are sustainable? Um, And, I mean, I think chefs are, I mean, this is another huge change in my lifetime. When, when I started writing about food, chefs were, being a chef was a blue-collar job. Chefs were mostly uneducated. They were mostly European. They were mostly people who had never gone, you know, had gone to work at 13 and spent their whole lives, you know, peeling potatoes in the basement of a kitchen and then working their way up. Um, today, you have really articulate brilliant chefs um, it it 's a whole different group of people. I mean Dan is remarkably articulate, but um, there are you know dozens of chefs um, and they are really putting their minds to this in a big way. Um, you know I mean Michelle Obama asked five hundred chefs to pledge to each take over a school and deal with school food and they do that and they think about waste and um, you know Dan has these um, he, his, his latest thing which is fascinating I mean one of the things I love about Dan Barber is he always thinks about the next thing, the thing that I'm not smart enough to have thought about but you know, he says forget about farm to table, it's seed to table and we really have to deal with seed breeding and Seed breeders now breed for... They don't breed for flavor. They don't breed for sustainability. They breed for longevity and beauty. And as chefs start demanding new things, seed breeders are thinking in new ways. So um, I think the food industry has actually been remarkably proactive in this and very proactive in dealing with hunger issues. Um, you know, it's because of chefs that things like the food banks uh, started and second helpings. And um, so um, I, I love the fact that we have chefs who actually understand that just serving good food isn't enough, that we need to do better. Somebody asked me something fun. I feel like I'm getting very... <laughs> it, it, you're microphone is coming. I'm just curious, what's the last thing that you served at a dinner party? Um, oh, that, that's a good question. What is the last thing I served at a dinner party? Um, I, um, I had a bunch of peop- people over. My husband just went into the hospital and had back surgery, so the night before he went in, I had a bunch of people over for dinner. And um, I... So before people sat down, I made um, buckwheat blini with um, not real caviar, but just salmon roe on it, creme fraiche and salmon roe. And then I, um, I love this dish. I make a, a sort of my version of a cochinita pibil, a marinated pork shoulder that you marinate it for a day and then you wrap it in banana leaves and cook it really slowly and I served that with white rice and beans and pickled red onions and um, tortillas and we kind of made tacos out of that um, and then a big salad and um, for dessert we had the first apricots had just come in so I made apricot pie um, I really love to cook I mean it's, it's my joy Yes, the microphone is coming to you.
0: I realize that as a restaurant critic, uh, it probably would not be difficult to actually put on weight. Did you have to really watch your weight with what you were ordering?
2: Um, you know, it, it's interesting, because I have spent my, you know, it's, it's always the question, people look at me and go, why aren't you fat? Um, <laughs> And I've spent my whole life sort of saying, well, I have a very good metabolism. But last year when Delicious came out, one of the things publishers do is they start sort of offering you up to magazines to write articles so that the word about your book gets out. So Allure magazine asked me to write about this. And for the first time in my life, I came clean about it. Um, And the truth is, I I was one of, I was a fat teenager. I was one of those kids that everybody said to me, you'd be so pretty if you would lose some weight. And I tried everything, you know, the grapefruit diet, nothing worked. And then I met my first husband who likes big women. And we started living together. And I'm sure it didn't happen this way, but my experience of it was that after we'd been living together for three months, I woke up one morning and I was thin. And I had lost 35 pounds. I don't know how, but I loved it. I loved not being fat. And um, in truth, the first thing that, when I was offered a job as a daily restaurant critic, I said, I can't do that, I'll get fat. And so I'm careful about what I eat. Um, you don't have to eat everything on your plate. And um, you know, one of the great things about being a restaurant critic is unlike now when I'm paying for my own meals and I don't get that many great meals, when I go to a great restaurant and I'm paying for it, I eat everything. If it's great, I eat it all. But when you're a restaurant critic, You know, you go out for a fabulous lunch, but you know you're having a fabulous dinner tonight, too. And, you know, there's always another spectacular meal. And you really learn to judge your own hunger and not to eat beyond it and not to use food for something else, which is what most of us do. You know, you eat it for love or to fulfill fulfill some need that is not hunger. And as a restaurant critic, I just learned... Uh, that's enough, I don't need to eat anymore. I rarely finish everything on my plate. Yeah. It was uh, through Gourmet Magazine that I was introduced to Laurie Colwyn who is one of my favorite food writers and I was wondering if you were fortunate enough to meet her and if you could share a story about her. I sadly, she is also one of my favorite food writers, and sadly, I never knew her. But when I got to Gourmet, my first day at the magazine, I I mean, I walked into my predecessor's office, and there was a cabinet, and I opened the cabinet, and this huge pile of letters fell out. And it was letters that readers, Gourmet readers, had written to her husband and daughter after she died. And there were like 400 of them. And I said, why didn't you send these on? And my secretary said, well, nobody. I said, send them. Send them immediately. And um, I got a very nice note from her daughter. And then um, I thought, well, we really should write a piece about her. So I got Anna Quinlan to write. A piece about knowing Lori which was, you know, made me even sorrier that I hadn't known her. But I didn't know her. Maybe one more question. Okay,
0: could you just share uh, share with us some um, your phase in um, disguises as a restaurant critic?
2: Yes. Um, okay. So, as many of you who have read Garlic and Sapphires know that. Um, When I went from the Los Angeles Times, where nobody cares who the restaurant critic is, all people want to know is where the celebrities eat. But when I went to New York, I was on a plane going to New York, and this woman next to me informed me that she recognized me, that she was a Waitress in a fancy restaurant, and that there was a huge picture in the kitchen of me with wanted written across the bottom and a reward of a thousand dollars to anybody who spotted me in the restaurant. And I believe to the core of my being that, you know, one of the things that my job as a restaurant critic was not to tell people what happened to the restaurant critic of the New York Times, but what would happen to them when they went to the restaurant. And I sat there on the plane fretting and fretting and fretting. And when I got off the plane, I thought, okay, there's only one thing to do about this. If they know who I am, I have to be someone else. And I called my mother's closest friend who was an acting coach. And I said, Claudia, where do I go get a wig? And Claudia said, oh, no, 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 no. You're about to be the restaurant critic of the New York Times. You can't make a fool. You can't just put on a wig and some silly glasses and, you know, you're gonna make a fool of yourself. You're gonna be a laughingstock. She said, I'll be right over. And she made me literally become someone else. I mean, she said, who are you going to be? And I pulled a name out of the hat and she said, okay, who is she? What does she do? What is, uh, who are her children? And before she let me go out, I mean, she did bring me a makeup person and a wig person. And we went and bought, this was, my first person was Molly Hollis. And Molly, um, had her own set of clothing, her her own rings, her own jewelry, a little tiny... I mean, she was a very proper woman. She was nothing like me. She was also much larger than I am, many layers of clothing. Um, and I wrote... Um, it was my seventh review at The New York Times. It was uh, a review of Le Cirque. And I wrote it in two takes, one as... Uh, Molly Hollis and one as the restaurant critic of the New York Times, one I went once not in disguise after I had been treated horribly as this dumpy woman from the Midwest. I mean, I just say every bad thing that could have happened, happened to her, including not being able to get the wine list, finally getting it, and then having the maitre d' come by like a minute later, and the wine list was this big, snatch it out of Molly's hands and say, I need that, and taking it to a man four tables away. I, and as me, I was furious, but as Molly, I was too timid to even object. So I had all these horrible experiences as Molly, and then I went, not in disguise, and... um. I went with my nephew and I said, you make a reservation and he called me and said, well, I could only get a 9.45 reservation. And I said, well, that's fine. And he said, but let's go at eight o'clock and see what happens. (laughs) So we go at eight o'clock and there are people milling around complaining because their table isn't ready. And the owner spots me and of course my picture is big. He recognizes me and he parts these people And he comes forward and he takes my hand and he leads me through the mumbling, angry throng and says, The king of Spain is waiting in the bar, but your table is ready. And I sit down and he gives us a table for four and says, You know, may we make you a meal and white truffles. Caviar, black truffles, champagne. I mean, the meal is fantastic. And I say to my nephew, yeah, the king of Spain is waiting in the bar. And Johnny goes, that is the king of Spain. I, I saw him on TV last night. But it was, I mean, when I wrote this review, the out war in New York, it was, there, there was, it. it, it was like, I mean, the King of Spain is waiting in the bar will probably be on my tombstone, but, <laughs> but your, your table is ready. Um, but it was, um, for the dining public in New York, it was like throwing down the gauntlet and saying, this is a critic who's on your side. But it was clear to me that then everybody knew who Molly was because um, they went back and figured out when I'd been there. And um, so I had to have another disguise. And I had many disguises from a wild redhead who uh, I loved, Brenda. Unfortunately, so did my family. They liked her better than me. She was very nice. And I had an elevator man who literally did not, he never understood that I was not Brenda. I mean, he, he, gets, he would say to me, when is your friend Brenda coming again? <laughs> And he, he kept saying, I love redheads. And she was very nice. Nothing ever bothered her. Um, I had Chloe, who was a sexy blonde, and occasionally um, sat in the bar and picked up men to have dinner with who never knew that I was not the person I was pretending to be, which was absolutely my most effective disguise, although my husband wasn't real happy about this. Um, And then my saddest one, um, and I will end with Betty. Um, One day I was on a bus and a kind of very sad-looking older woman got on carrying suitcases, uh, shopping bags. You know, you've seen them. Rolled down uh, stockings, uh, kind of cracked shoes, And I got up. She looked so tired. I got up to give her my seat. And she said, oh, thank you, dearie. No one ever stands up for me. Sometimes I feel invisible. And I thought, invisible? I'm trying to be invisible. And so when she got off, I followed her at a distance. And I saw that she really was invisible. And so I turned myself into Betty for... Some restaurants. Um, So, you, if you, it's all in Garlic and Sapphires. I'm just telling you stories that I've written. But um, I will end by saying that, um, you know, I mean, I started out as a food writer, but um, what I learned from Garlic and Sapphires, what I learned from turning myself into all these other people, was what it feels like to live inside someone else's skin. Because you you do this, and you forget that it's not you, but people respond to what they're looking at. And so you end up responding to their response. And when I went to write a novel, I said to my uh, to my editor well I'm not sure I can write a novel and she said oh don't be ridiculous all your, all your memoirs read like novels and I said yeah but it's different and she said and on top of that you've been living fiction for you know the entire time you were at the New York Times you lived fiction now all you have to do is write it so that was kind of how I got into writing a novel thank you very much you have been a great audience